In the early 70s, Rodney Lincoln served two years in prison for accidentally killing a man in a bar fight. About 10 years later, he briefly dated a woman named Joanne Tate. And about a year after that, in the early morning hours of April 27, 1982, Joanne was brutally stabbed to death and sexually assaulted in her St. Louis apartment. Her two young daughters, seven-year-old Melissa and four-year-old Renee, miraculously survived the attack. Joanne's brother thought her ex-boyfriend, Rodney Lincoln, resembled a composite sketch. Investigators presented the older girl, Melissa, with a very suggestive lineup, and it had the desired effect. Without DNA testing available, this misidentification, along with Rodney's past conviction, sealed his fate. The first trial ended in a hung jury. However, in the second, the state leaned heavily on dubious hair microscopy evidence and Melissa's testimony. Unfortunately for Rodney, pointing out the inconsistencies between Melissa's initial statements and trial testimony could not overcome the power of a then nine-year-old girl describing an unspeakable attack. 27 years later, DNA testing excluded Rodney, but Melissa's testimony still loomed. Finally, when a serial killer named Tommy Lynn Sells had confessed to scores of eerily similar crimes, Melissa immediately recognized him from photos as the actual attacker. However, her recantation was still somehow not enough to immediately set Rodney free. This is Wrongful Conviction. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids just like yours. And all content is fully human moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. Today's episode, I mean... It's truly mind-blowing, even for me. And I've been doing this for a long time. 
This is a case of the wrongful conviction of a man named Rodney Lincoln, who's here with us today. And first of all, before I go any further, Rodney, you know, what can I say? I'm, I'm sorry you're here under these circumstances. You never should have to go through any of this in the first place, but I'm obviously very happy that you're here to share your story. So thanks for being here today. Thank you for having me, Jason. We also have with us today the, one of the most tenacious and persistent fighters for Rodney's innocence, and that's Rodney's own daughter, Kay Lincoln. Kay, thanks so much for being with us today. No problem. And Rodney, what a guy. I mean, this is a man who served over 36 years in prison, and his case involves junk science, a mistaken eyewitness identification. There's a serial killer whose name you'll probably recognize because he was responsible for other wrongful convictions we've covered on this series. I mean, Rodney's case is a case that when you're at one of these innocence conferences and you start talking about this or that, people go, yeah, but have you heard about Rodney Lincoln? It's like whispered because this case is so batshit crazy. So without further ado, let's go back in time. So where did you grow up? I grew up in South St. Louis, Missouri. I was a happy kid. We were poor, but everybody around us was poor, too, so we didn't know that we were poor. Right. There was no social media back then. So you had a happy childhood. And then it goes up to 1973. You're still a, a very young man, right? You got into a drunken bar fight, and this is not the case we're here to talk about. This was something that actually happened, right? But do you want to talk about that just for a second? In 1973, I was convicted of a second-degree murder. I was in a bar drinking one day, and a friend of mine from across the street came over and told me, hey, some guy just stole something out of your truck. And, well, I had just enough drinks in me that I was ready to go after him. Unfortunately, I did. We got into a confrontation, and he threw a rock at me and missed I threw a rock at him and didn't, and I wound up convicted of second-degree murder. Well, you served your time in prison for that crime, but little would you know at the time, that was just the tip of the iceberg for your experience with the criminal legal system in this country, right? And in this case, you were actually guilty, and did you plead guilty in that case? Yes, I did. I confessed to the crime. I was rightfully convicted. All right, so now it's the late 70s, getting into the early 80s, and you're out of prison. What were you doing for work, and how did you first meet Joanne Tate? Myers says you dated at some point, right? Yes, we dated a few times. I was tending boy at a place called the Cottage Inn, and this couple comes in the bar, and I find out that this is Joanne Tate and her brother. While there, I got talking to Joanne. When they got ready to leave, Joanne gave me a piece of paper with a phone number on it, asked me to call her. That night when I got off work, I called her. She answered, and that was the first time we met outside of the bar. And when I say we dated, it wasn't like a mad love affair. Our relationship was purely sexual. Okay, and then how long after that does this horrible crime happen? It was just about a year, I think, maybe a little over, because I had been dating my girlfriend at the time for about eight months. 
Now we fast forward to the early morning hours of April 27th, 1982. This is going to be hard to hear. I'm just going to warn the audience. This crime is so grotesque that it's hard for me to even say it or read it because this was the mark of a serial killer who was reaching the depths of his depraved crime spree. So in the early morning hours of April 27th, 1982, Joanne Tate was 35 years old. She was stabbed in the chest and sexually assaulted with a broomstick in her apartment in St. Louis, Missouri. Now her seven-year-old daughter, Melissa, also was stabbed several times and her four-year-old daughter, Renee, had her throat cut. The girls survived the attack, but their mother tragically did not. Her body was discovered at 10 a.m. when her brother and boyfriend entered the apartment and found her lying face down in a pool of blood and her daughter's lying there as well, covered in blood with multiple stab wounds. The upstairs neighbor had heard a loud noise from Mrs. Tate's apartment at approximately 4 a.m. that morning. And then when police arrived at the scene, they noticed the two girls were still alive, but they saw that there were, and again, brace yourself, bristles of a broom were protruding from the anus of Ms. Joanne Tate. Now, Renee, the four-year-old, never offered any identification of the attacker, but Melissa, the seven-year-old, gave the police various different statements. Now, for a while, she stuck to a story that a man named Bill was the attacker, right? Not Rodney, Bill. And she gave the police some details about his car and his house. I believe they also made a sketch. But do you know how your name first came up to the police? The way my name came up is they found my name in Joanne's diary. And her brother said, that's the guy I'm thinking of. That's the guy I think the sketch looks like. And police eventually showed a picture of you, a photo of you, Rodney, to the young girl, Melissa. And they had the fact that you had a murder conviction on your record from the drunken fight 10 years earlier, completely unrelated, by the way, which was a very different situation, obviously. But after they show Melissa your photo, this poor little girl was shown a four-person live lineup with you in it. And here's the thing. You had short hair and a slight build, but the other three men didn't resemble you at all. Right. One was about six inches taller than I was, and all of them had extremely long hair and were built a lot bigger than I was. I've always been a pretty small person. I was the smallest in that lineup, not to mention that they were all younger than I was. Yeah, so this is suggestive isn't even a strong enough word. And this is why I believe that these things should all be recorded. Eyewitness identification, not just interrogations of suspects, because I mean, how much more traumatized could a child be? She's witnessed her own mother's brutal murder and also was stabbed several times by this monster. And now imagine her, this little child with these police officers, you know, steering her, maybe they were doing it consciously, subconsciously, I don't know, towards the one guy in the lineup who looked anything like what she had said she remembered from this attack. Also, during the investigation, there was hair found and pubic hair that apparently did not belong to Joanne Tate. So the state brings in a few quote-unquote experts, and we'll get to that insanity in just a bit. Okay, so you were arrested, Rodney, on May 23rd of 1982. So this is just a few weeks after the attack. 
that you're arrested and charged based on this, let me say this sort of suggestive identification procedure, this junk science of the hair and the basic idea that they had tunnel vision because they said, well, here's a guy who had been convicted of murder. Nothing like this one, nothing in common at all. And who dated her just briefly. So it must be him. So you're in jail awaiting trial from May 1982 until August of 1983. I was in jail for 535 days. 535 days. That's about a year and a half awaiting the trial. But now you had kids. You had, what, four kids by this point? Uh, yes. Two sons and two daughters. And your daughter Kay is here with us now. So, Kay, what was all of this like for you? What do you remember feeling at that time? Confusion. <laughs> Why was this happening? Just was so lost as to what, why, how could this even be a thought that he could do something like this? And I remember the first time we went to visit him when he was being held at the city jail shortly after he was arrested. And he just looked us in the eyes and said, I need you to know I didn't do this. I had nothing to do with this. And that was really all I needed to hear. And I really believed that, okay, so he didn't do it. These guys are trying to just do their job they'll figure out that it wasn't him and he'll come home. And of course that didn't happen. And it was a year and a half before he went to trial. And we thought, well, okay, he's going to trial. They'll figure it out. The judge will send him home. And in the first trial that almost panned out. And who, who represented you, Rodney? I was represented by an attorney by the name of Robert Hampy. And how long did the trial take? The first trial took 15 days. And it ended in the seven to five split verdict, which hung the jury, of course. So now back to jail to await another trial, which took place in October of 1983. And was it the same attorney that represented you in the second trial? Yes. So at the second trial, the state presented two criminalists who were employed by the city of St. Louis Police Department, Joseph Crow and Harold Mesler who testified about hair that was found at the crime scene. Now, Crow said that he examined a blanket found in the bedroom, found hair, and found one sample of a pubic hair that did not belong to the victim. On cross-examination, Mr. Crow stated that the information that can be gathered from a hair is limited and that he didn't think it was possible to determine the age of the person and that one could not identify the ethnicity of a hair from a Caucasian, quote, with a great deal of certainty. This doesn't sound like very strong testimony. So. The hair evidence was then passed to Mesler, the other guy, to examine, and he testified that compared to a sample from you, Rodney, along with samples from 37 other Caucasians, the 37 others were not comparable to the hair found at the scene. Okay, so I'm no scientist, but so these 37 other samples, 37 other people, that's what passed for the exclusion of anyone else on the planet, Right. It's unbelievable that this is allowed to go on in a, in a court of law, but okay. Later, the same guy, Mesler, testified that when examining the 37 other individuals' hair, along with Tate's hair and Lincoln's hair, only yours, Rodney, matched. And that in 200 cases that he had handled, he had never found one where hair recovered from the crime scene matched to more than one person. Again, what does that even mean or prove? I mean, if the process is getting 37 samples, 
who cares if you did the same shoddy testing 200 times or 2 million times? Does that disprove that your suspect's hair isn't just similar to the actual killer's hair? How do you know that from this method? Well, the answer is you don't. Hair microscopy possesses little to no forensic value. You know, I'm reading this fantastic book now. In fact, I just finished it last night by M. Chris Fabricant. And it's called Junk Science and the American Criminal Justice System. One of the things it highlights is how the National Academy of Sciences did a study not, not that long ago, where the FBI was forced to admit that they had been lying in case after case for decades about this evidence. A sampling of the first 500 transcripts revealed that special agents had given bogus testimony in about 96% of the cases. 35 had been death penalty convictions, and all but two of those had been marred by false testimony. Now, nine men had already been put to death and five more had died of other causes while waiting to be executed on death row due to this junk science. It's nothing short of a forensic testimony disaster. So you've got this junk science presented at your trial, Rodney, but it's really there to support Melissa, whose testimony, despite the inconsistencies, was still very powerful. We're talking about a, what was she by the time of the trial, just nine years old? I believe so, yes. So she described, with little nine-year-old Melissa, described waking up to screams and seeing her mother laying down on her stomach in a pool of blood near the door to her bedroom. She said she saw a naked man, and again, I'm sorry you have to hear this, who came over to her bed, picked her up, and carried her up to Tate's bedroom, put her on the bed, and removed her clothes. She said he tried to get her to, quote, do a few things. He stabbed her repeatedly, and she attempted to play dead until he stopped. Again, this is her testimony. She said the attacker then washed off the knife, and she hid under her sister's bed. And she then heard the attacker hurt her sister. Oh, man, this is just getting worse and worse. When she was in her mother's bedroom, she said she got a good look at the killer. She said she did not remember his name at the time, but she remembered seeing him before that night a long time ago when she, Renee, and her mom spent the night at your house, Rodney. She said the house was across from a park with a playground, and that your mother and some pets lived there, and she identified the playground at the park from photos. She then identified a photo of you, Rodney, as her attacker, as the attacker of the whole family, and she identified you in the courtroom as well. She then explained that she initially said, because you remember she had said Bill did it, right? Because she was sick and hurt and everyone kept bothering her for a name, she just said Bill. She stated several times that Bill... And Lincoln were the same person. And at the time of the attacks, she did not really know your name. As I uh, sit there in that second trial, I'm beginning to see I am in some very serious trouble. Let's talk about your defense. Your attorney, Rodney Robert Hampy, who had been with you now for quite some time through the first trial and the second trial, yes. he had an almost impossible task because how do you cross-examine a traumatized, terrified little girl who's lost her mother and almost lost her own life as well as seen her sister savagely attacked? I, I don't know how you go about doing that, but how, how did he attempt to, because she was really the whole case, right? Right. I think, as I look back on it now, his whole line of attack, he hot mostly on the inconsistencies of her statements, trying to get her to repeat the different things that she had said in the past 
that was not exactly as it was supposed to be now. As I look back on it now, I almost feel like he was hounding her as much as they were. Well, that could backfire as well. Because, I mean, he had to walk a tightrope, and it sounds like he didn't do it very well. But he literally was in between a rock and a hard place because the jury's not going to want to see him being anything other than gentle, so to speak, to this child. But he had your life on the line. And the only way to get you out of this at this point was to undermine her testimony, which, as of course, turns out all those years later to have been false. Okay, so then we get to the closing argument. And in the state's closing argument, they didn't really focus on the hair sample. Rather, they kept harping on little Melissa's testimony, noting that Renee was too young to testify and stating that Melissa, quote, bore the responsibility for the three of them to tell you what happened that night. Whoa. And then they recapped Melissa's identification of you, Rodney. And I would say at that point, your fate was probably more or less sealed. I mean, these are people on the jury. These are normal people who are listening to this testimony of this child and who want to get justice for her and her mom and her sister and the family. And so I think that that's going to cloud their judgment. And while they may have had real doubts as to your guilt, at this point, the human instinct is dependent on somebody, right? So... How long did they deliberate for? The second trial, they was out, I think, about two and a half hours. Well, that's not very long at all. And when they came back in, did you still hold out hope? Or did you, as you said before, you knew you were in serious trouble. Had you basically resigned yourself to the idea that these people were going to come back and, and render a guilty verdict? No. No, I still felt that they're going to get it right. They're going to come back and say, look, we can't find enough evidence to convict this guy. <laughs> and you would go home and try to piece your life back together again. But unfortunately, that was not to be. So, Rodney, when the jury came back in, what was that moment like when they convicted you and sentenced you to life in prison plus 15 years for a crime you had nothing to do with? I find it very hard to describe that feeling. It was just... Like everything inside of me was yanked out. Nothing there but the shell. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media, but now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Before I found Zigazoo, I believed all social media was inappropriate for kids. 
but I feel great about my kids being on Zigazoo. Videos are moderated by actual people before being added to the feed. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about mean comments on your kids' videos. And you need parental consent before joining Zigazoo. Bottom line, it's a space that prioritizes data safety for kids. Oh, but don't take my word for it. Zigazoo is KidSafe COPPA certified. So weigh everything Zigazoo has to offer. Maybe you'll zigzag too. Zigazoo, a social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Hey, Doug Gottlieb here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making the now perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new Toyota truck, like a rugged half-ton Tundra. Workhorse by nature, powerhouse by design, the Tundra combines the raw capability with premium comfort and advanced tech to fuel your wildest adventures. With the available iForce Max hybrid powertrain, you can take electrifying horsepower further than ever before. Or check out the fully redesigned Tacoma, delivering trail-dominating power and captivating style. The new Tacoma was born to make your off-roading dreams come true. With new available tech, this legendary truck is getting even better. When you buy a Toyota truck, you buy Toyota dependability, meaning your truck will hold its value long into the future. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out the amazing national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. At that time, I was taken to the Madrid State Penitentiary in Jefferson City. When I arrived, I was taken to a large room with a bunch of other people. We were stripped down, got into a shower where we were sprayed like cattle. I was assigned to two house at the Jefferson City Penitentiary. Once I got there, it was a living nightmare. I was always looking over my shoulder, hesitant to do anything or go anywhere. And it remained that way for just about for 10 years. And meanwhile, you're enduring these archaic and barbaric prison conditions while being handed one devastating disappointment after another from the courts. And by that, I mean that in 1986, your wrongful conviction was upheld on direct appeal, and then the motion for post-conviction relief was denied two years later in 1988. But a crucial breakthrough came in 2003 when the St. Louis, Missouri Circuit Attorney's Office started a justice project to review old convictions and chose your case to review out of 1,400 old cases. And here I'd like to turn back to your daughter, Kay, because she plays an absolutely crucial role in what happens next. So, Kay, can you take us through this? It was June 5th, 2003, 
I got off work that evening and I stopped by my mom's house. And I walked in the door and she was just finishing watching the news and she said, your dad may be out in a couple weeks. And I said, you're crazy. What are you talking about? She said, they just showed his picture on the news and they said they're reviewing his case. So the next morning I called down to the circuit attorney's office and I asked them, is this true? Is he one of the cases? And they verified that, yes, this was one of the cases that they were looking at. And so I started a communication with the man who was in charge of doing this review. And through the course of our communication, they said, well, we can't find the transcripts. We can't get a hold of the transcripts. So I tracked them down. I went to the Court of Appeals and I purchased the transcripts from them. It was like $1,200 to get these transcripts. I made copies and took them down to the circuit attorney's office and said, here you go, get busy, (laughs) you know? So as they're doing their review, I'm rereading these transcripts myself. And I'm just getting blown away by the things that I'm seeing because my aunt had an original copy of Melissa's deposition from back in 1982. So I'm comparing Melissa's deposition to things that were said in trial. And I'm like, well, this isn't even jiving. It's not making sense. So then I thought, well, I need to see these police reports. So I requested the police reports and it took forever to get them. The police department did not want to give them to me. Now I'm reading them and I'm freaking out because there's so much information here. The more I read, the more I need to find more, you know? So I'm like, I need this lineup photo. And I had to fight and fight to get the lineup photo. I finally got that. And I was just blown away. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's incredible. Yeah, right. It, it really is. I mean, the suggested nature of the whole thing, you know, there's these huge dudes with long hair and your dad's got short hair and a lighter build. Yeah, it's almost like a joke. So I got the lineup photo. I'm reading trial transcripts and police reports. And I'm like, oh, well, there's more depositions somewhere. So I go back down to the courts and I request all the depositions. And I'm reading through them. And one really got my attention. There was a criminologist, I guess, by the name of John Salmon. And in his deposition, he states that he identified a fingerprint on the knife as my dad's. And I'm like, wait a minute, that never came up in trial. I guess it was my dad's attorney who was doing the deposition. And he said, are you aware of a man named George Bonebreak? And Detective Salmon said, yes, he was a fingerprint analysis expert at the FBI. And so the attorney asks him, are you aware that this print was sent to George Bonebreak for evaluation? They go off the record, come back on the record, and he states that he is no longer willing to testify that that is Rodney Lincoln's fingerprint unless George Bonebreak testifies that it's Rodney Lincoln's fingerprint. Well, what happened was the police department had sent that print to Bonebreak to try to get confirmation of it being his. Bonebreak gave them back a report saying, no, it's not his fingerprint. And he actually offered to testify for the defense, but wanted like $1,000 or something that they didn't have to pay him. So you had a detective who says this is his fingerprint and absolutely knows it's not. And that was never brought up at trial. Dad's attorney and the prosecutor agreed to a stipulation that neither one of them would bring that print up at trial. And I was like, why in the hell would his attorney not bring that up? 
So this investigation into your dad's conviction by the circuit attorney, well, in April 2004, they decided to close it down, right? They said they couldn't locate the fingernail scrapings from Joanne from the attacker and couldn't provide any conclusive proof with the hair, so they wouldn't be doing any further investigation or testing. I mean, I can't imagine how that would have felt. What did you do? What were you thinking then? I'm like, wait a minute. I've got way too much information now in the past 10 months. Somebody's going to do something. You might be finished, but I'm not. And you weren't. And we're about to get into that. I mean, Rodney, you have to be so proud of Kay. I mean, damn, I'm proud of Kay. (laughs) And without her, we probably wouldn't even be having this conversation right now. Absolutely. I would be in a whole lot worse shape than what I am today, if not for her. She gathered all the information and did all the legwork and did a lot of the investigation, contacted a guy by the name of Steve Weinberg, who was a journalist at the Columbia School of Journalism. He was also the founder of the Midwest Innocence Project. Kay made contact with him, and he used my case with his journalist students and allowed them to investigate my case. And they came up with a lot of the information that we have today. So it's now 2010. So this ordeal has now been going on for more than a quarter century. In 2010, DNA testing that the Midwest Innocent Project had fought for was approved and samples from the crime scene were tested. And of course, the results did not match you, Rodney, and then MIP filed to have you released. But the motion was opposed, and Circuit Court Judge Robin Vinoy ruled that the DNA results were not enough to exonerate you, Rodney. I mean, how did it feel to you when you were aware that the DNA had exculpated you, right? And yet the courts are saying, eh, no, we're not buying that DNA stuff. Well, what we were told that DNA on the hair was not enough to release me because they still had the eyewitness testimony. Right. So in 2014, we come to a crucial turning point in this case. And that brings us to this awful character in this story today. And we've heard his name on the show before. I'm talking about serial killer Tommy Lynn Sells. And so I reached out to a fascinating person whose investigative work into just how many innocent people were in prison for murders that were actually committed by Tommy Lynn Sells led him to start several organizations in different states, including the Illinois Innocence Project, by the way, just to give you an idea of how many murders and wrongful convictions for which Sells is responsible. Julie Ray, who's been on the show, Herb Whitlock, you, Rodney, of course, and we're not even scratching the surface. So in speaking with this investigator, he gives us a look inside his journey into the murderous career of Tommy Lynn Sells, starting with the wrongful conviction of Randy Steidel and how that unfolds into Rodney's case. My name is Bill Clutter. I'm a private investigator. 20 years ago, I started the Illinois Innocence Project in Springfield, Illinois. I was involved in the case of Randy Steidel, who spent most of his 17 years on death row. You know, in 2014, although Steidel and Whitlock were free, they still hadn't had their names cleared. And so I filed a affidavit detailing all the crimes of Tommy Lynn Sells. So part of those details included his modus operandi, where in many of his cases, he would strike at 4 a.m., take knives from the kitchen, where he would stab his victims to death. But 
It was the details of the Dardeen case that was in my affidavit that caught the attention of an attorney in Rhode Island, Jen Fitzgerald. She reached out to me and asked if I was aware of the Rodney Lincoln case. When she started telling me the details that that the murder happened at 4 a.m., a knife from the kitchen was used, that it happened in St. Louis, where I knew that Tommy Lincell's family moved around February of 1982. That was significant because it gives Sells opportunity to have committed the murder of Joanne Tate. And here he was only 17 at the time. And this would have been one of his very early murders that he committed. And all of the factors of that case are identical to many of his other cases. 4 a.m., knife from the kitchen. And it so happened that uh, Crime Watch Daily it was a new syndicated crime show that reached out and was interested in doing a story about my investigation linking cells to the murder of Joanne Tate. It was that show when it aired in November of 2015 that triggered the recantation of Melissa DeBoer. When she saw the images of Tommy Lynn cells, she had a flashback and this visceral reaction And she reached out to Kay Lincoln on social media that your dad is innocent. Tommy Lynn Sells killed my mother. Well, it sure checks out because when you look at the grotesque details of Mrs. Ruby Dardeen's murder, and again, brace yourself because this is grotesque, but Mrs. Dardeen's body was found next to her three-year-old son and newborn baby. Now, Tommy Lincells was a hitman for hire, as well as just seemed like he just enjoyed violence, like it was his sort of weird kick. And this case appears to be one of the hired variety, because it's believed that the mafia actually hired him to brutalize the Dardines. The husband, Keith, in particular, was made to watch his family be physically destroyed. Tommy Lincells had waited for Ruby's husband, Keith, to come home, and during this time, Ruby gave birth to her baby. Oh, my God, I'm going to cry. And Keith was found a while away, shot execution style, with his penis severed and stuffed into his mouth. I mean, and his wife, Ruby, was found, and this is important. Again, cover your ears if you're squeamish. But this is important because it it, it relates back to the circumstances surrounding the Tate murder. Mrs. Dardeen was found with a baseball bat protruding from her vagina. So this was this sick bastard's M.O. After Melissa reached out to Kay on Facebook, and Midwest Innocence Project shifted their attention to Tommy Lynn Sells. At some point, Melissa learned that you, Rodney, were left-handed, unlike the man who killed her mom and attacked her. So on November 28, 2015, Melissa, now a grown woman, well into her, I guess, 40s now, from that nine-year-old girl who testified, or seven-year-old girl that had been attacked, she recanted her testimony against Rodney Lincoln. She said, and this is a direct quote, Rodney Lincoln did not kill my mom. He did not attempt to kill my sister and I. It was Tommy Lynn Sells. When the veil fell from my eyes, I was horrified. I have kept an innocent man in prison for 34 years. I did not know I was wrong, but I was and realizing it is so painful. When I saw a picture of Tommy Lynn Sells, I had a horrible, horrible feeling. And when I think about that terrible night, I now see how I could have gotten mixed up. This is all I can really say right now. 
end quote. I learned about that again through my daughter. She came up to visit me, and when she told me that she talked to Melissa, and Melissa was going to recant her statement, we laughed, we cried. I felt at last it's finally ending. Then, after Melissa actually went to the prosecutor's office, I was told how Melissa was treated like she couldn't possibly be right here after 30 years, saying that she was wrong, but yet they didn't have any trouble believing her when she was seven. That just amazes me. Yeah, it seems backwards and upside down and inside out and everything, right? And it's amazing how they can just believe what they want to believe when they want to believe it and then discount it when it doesn't match exactly what they want the narrative to be. I can't leave out that this poor, poor woman, Melissa, is now being re-traumatized as she learns that she had been lied to by the people who were sworn to protect and serve her and who, as a child who had just lost her mother, must have been, just imagine clinging on to anyone, any grown-up that you think might be able to help you and to have been betrayed and then to, as she said so eloquently in such a heartfelt manner, to now have to live with this awful feeling that she was responsible for putting a man who had nothing to do with it in prison for, I mean, Jesus, you served almost four decades in prison. And so now the state is refusing to listen to her, but she wasn't done yet. In December 2015, Melissa went and met with the St. Louis Prosecuting Attorney's Office to declare her recantation. And she even came to meet you in prison to ask for your forgiveness. I right. mean, I told her that there was nothing to forgive her for because she didn't do anything. She was manipulated and coerced and guided and tricked. Uh, I couldn't forgive her because there wasn't anything to forgive her for. She was innocent. We did hug, we cried, we laughed. When she first walked up to me, she just kept saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And I kept telling her, there's nothing to be sorry for. You didn't do anything. It was a moment that I can't really describe how I felt. It was a moment that I would cherish the rest of my life. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. 
Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media, but now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Before I found Zigazoo, I believed all social media was inappropriate for kids. But I feel great about my kids being on Zigazoo. Videos are moderated by actual people before being added to the feed. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about mean comments on your kids' videos. And you need parental consent before joining Zigazoo. Bottom line, it's a space that prioritizes data safety for kids. Oh, but don't take my word for it. Zigazoo is KidSafe COPPA certified. So weigh everything Zigazoo has to offer. Maybe you'll zigzag too. Zigazoo, a social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Hey guys, it's Steve Cavino from Cavino and Rich here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new Toyota truck like a rugged half-ton Tundra. Workhorse by nature, powerhouse by design, the Tundra combines raw capability with premium comfort and advanced tech to fuel your wildest adventures. And with the available iForce Max Hybrid powertrain, you can take electrifying horsepower farther than ever before. Or check out the fully redesigned Tacoma delivering trail-dominating power and captivating style. The new Tacoma was born to make your off-roading dreams come true. And with the new available tech, this legendary truck is getting even better. When you buy a Toyota truck... You buy Toyota dependability, meaning your truck will hold this value long into the future. So visit your local Toyota dealer. Check out the amazing national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. I'm always at a loss for words when I hear these stories. What I read is that what you said to her when she begged for your forgiveness was... I have nothing to forgive you for. You are completely blameless. I thank you for your courage, but you only have my love, not any anger from me. I'm so sorry for you and for losing your mom. Woof. That's that's probably exactly what she needed to hear and probably exactly what you needed to get off your chest. And then things started to roll, even though there was still one more major speed bump ahead, right, which is that in 2017, Despite the DNA evidence and the sole eyewitness, both on your side, your case was still denied a review by the Missouri Supreme Court. I mean, like, like what? <laughs> I mean, what was your reaction to that? Well, by this time, I'm beginning to understand that our perfect court system isn't so perfect. The decision of the appeals court that innocence isn't enough 
to free a person unless they have the death penalty. That floored me. And then the Supreme Court wouldn't even hear the case. They simply denied to hear it. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Like, what? deny it on what basis? But you're here today, and that's because, remarkably, Governor Greitens, certainly not a criminal justice reformer, stepped in and commuted your sentence in June of 2018, and you were immediately released. Not pardoned, by the way. And so you're still living as as a convicted murderer, which is insane. You know, I still wonder about that today. I didn't find out about this until around 10.30 the morning of the day that I left. They came and got me and told me that I had to go up front and wait for a call from the governor. The phone rang, and I was sitting in the office at the time. manager answered the phone, and he hands the phone to me. I say, hello. The boy says, is this Rodney Lincoln? I said, yes, it is. He said, someone here wants to speak to you. Here's the governor of the state of Missouri. And then governor comes on. He says, Rodney? I said, yes, sir. He said, I just wanted to call and tell you that I'm commuting your sentence to time served. The only thing I could think of at that moment was thank you. (laughs) And then the governor told me, Rodney, I want you to spend the rest of your time building a better community, making this a better country, and God bless you. And the only thing I could say was, God bless you. That's a short and sweet conversation if I ever heard one. Yes, short, sweet, and at least for me, very powerful. I never left the penitentiary until... 20 minutes after 6 that evening. And I walked out, my two daughters and my grandson and two of my attorneys were there to meet me. Rodney, I got to ask, what was that like? Like I'm talking about your first steps out as a free man into free air after so many long years in prison. You know, today everything's virtual. And... It's kind of the way I felt then, like this is, you know, happened virtually. This isn't real. So you felt like it was a dream? Absolutely. A very good one, but a dream. And then what did you do? So a lot of hugs and tears, I'm sure, and laughter. Oh, yes. Um, We hugged, cried, laughed. I have a very emotional family. One of the things that I remember so vividly is I remember telling my daughter how much better the sunshine felt outside of the prison from the way it did on the inside. What a day, man. And meanwhile, that was back in 2018, and it's now 2022, so this is a little more than three and a half years ago. And I understand that you have been traveling the country speaking about your experience courageously and and advocating to try to help prevent others from going through the same nightmare that you went through. There's a wonderful quote that I read from you that said, just the fact that I could possibly help someone that was the same position that I was in, if I can do something today that makes me a better person or help someone else, it's been a good day. 
That's awesome. You're you're awesome, man. That's all I can say about that. So how's life been these three and a half years of freedom? Fantastically amazing. Would almost cover it. Since I've been out, I've been on uh, several vacations. Did some deep sea fishing. Did some paragliding. I rode a pirate ship. I jumped out of a perfectly good airplane twice. Amazing. I'm using this time to learn more about myself as well as the people around me. I was away and a lot of things you just lose touch of. And I'm trying to regain that tightness and family bonds. I try and keep in touch with as many of the guys back at the prison as I can by email. Since this COVID hit, I've been able to uh, do much speaking, advocating, and tend to continue with that. Well, we need you out there and we need you on here. And the good news, you know, 100,000 plus people will hear this podcast and hear your thoughts that you shared with us so generously. It's been an honor for me to have the chance to interview you here today. You are an inspiration. And for people who want to help Rodney as he hopefully lives another 20, 30 years, and as he continues to do his good work, there's a GoFundMe. Just go to the link in our bio. We'll have it posted right there for you. One click. Donate $5, $500,000, whatever you want, anything you can spare to help Rodney. You can also learn even more about this case on a podcast called The Real Killer. It's a 12-episode series, and this case certainly has a lot of layers to it. And then, Rodney, we now turn to the closing of the show, which we call Closing Arguments. It works like this. I'm going to turn off my microphone, kick back in my chair, turn the volume up and leave my headphones on and just listen to any thoughts you want to share that we haven't already covered. As far as my case, I think we covered that pretty thoroughly. And I certainly appreciate you giving me this opportunity. One thing that I would like to share is Melissa is trying to get reestablished here in St. Louis. And there's a GoFundMe for her to help her raise money for housing. If you would, go to that GoFundMe and help Melissa out. She's having a pretty rough time right now and she needs some help. And by helping her, that would help me. That's beautiful. We'll also have the GoFundMe for Melissa, who you've heard so much about in this episode. We'll have it posted in our bio as well. So go there, click on that. Rodney, what a generous and wonderful spirit you are. Thanks again for sharing your thoughts with us. Thank you again for having me. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall, Justin Golden, Jeff Clyburn, and Kevin Wardis, with research by Lila Robinson. The music in this production was supplied by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph, 
Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrong Conviction, as well as at Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can also follow me on both TikTok and Instagram at It's Jason Flom. Wrongful Conviction is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number 1. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids just like yours. And all content is fully human moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome.